Journey, it's so good to be back with you today. I'm so honored. Um, you know, normally, man, there's a lot of people in this room. You guys like this service. Wow. Okay. Um, listen, normally when I speak, you may know this, I get really anxious and stressed out, and so I can't sleep the night before, wake up, go to the bathroom a lot, breathe in a brown paper bag. But this time, come back home, in addition to those things, I was really excited to preach today. So I'm, I'm just thrilled to be back. The season that we had here was so special. I'm like, it's only been four months, but it feels like it's been forever for us since we've been here. Um, and it's just really unique and um, special just to have family away from home, to have a home away from home. I just want to thank you guys for being that church to us and my family, how you're praying for us, supporting us in that way, reaching out. Um, it's just very, very, uh, I don't want to take for granted what we have here. You know, either we're 1,400 miles apart. I wish I could say more, but I have 15 minutes to preach. So instead, we got to jump into our text today. Um, when I was helping out with the student ministry here at Journey, I remember sitting out in the family ministry lobby area on the couch. And someone threw to me, tossed at me, this massive beach ball like they use for nine square. And on this beach ball, they had all these questions written on it. I think the idea is that you catch this ball playing some sort of game and you answer the question that you like see. And so the one that I did was, what's your favorite, what's the best month of the year? And as I always do, overanalyzing everything, I had the answer to that question. So then I started thinking, what is my favorite month of the year? What's the best month of the year? How do we figure that out? So I started working through all the different months. January, February, I don't know. You're following up December, tall task. New Year's resolutions are falling off. People are pretty sad. Like, I don't think those are the popular months of the year. March, April, you have Easter, spring break. My anniversary's in April. That's cool. May's great. Mother's Day. Mother's Day, anyone? We like moms. Uh, my birthday, May 23rd, right? Um, end of the semester, beginning of the summer, like it's a pretty good month. No one cares about June. Um, July, all three of my children are born in July. So by that math, maybe our favorite month is October. I don't know. <laughs> we love the fall. Um, so the way that I got to my answer is I actually didn't end up using a calendar month, all right? I cheated the system. I instead... I thought of what's my favorite span of time, 30, 31-ish days, and here's how I, what I concluded. I think the best and my favorite time of the year, the month, is Thanksgiving Day to Christmas Day. Can I get a name in the room? That's right. Um, I just think it's just without a doubt unparalleled. Like culturally, we all look forward to this time of the year. Like we love it. Thanksgiving comes around, and then from that day on, we're looking forward to Christmas. It's a magical time. People who don't do traditions, doing traditions. You're trying to make up traditions. Like you just want to fit in. And I think it's a really beautiful time. It's fun. It's exciting. Nothing wrong with it. But I do think it says something about us at a, a deep heart level um, that we look to that season, to this one that we're currently in, as an escape. Um, we look at the holiday season as a way to get away from life and the reality that we're in, right? The weary world that we're living in, we so long for something better. We so long for something greater. We long for something to take us away from the day-to-day -day life that we're living. And so even though it's a great holiday season, what's so powerful what we're doing as a church, this Advent series, is really redeeming back the season. Because even though it's great and magical, it's not about those things. It's not about Santa Claus and cookies. If you do that thing, I'm all for it, all right? It's not about those things, though. Instead, we're trying to bring back this reality that the Christmas season is not about escaping, but embracing the ultimate reality that God came down. Amen? 
And because he did that, we have hope that we didn't have before. And so last week, Pastor Christian did a phenomenal job, as he always does, preaching here. He started off with the hope candle, the prophecy candle. And he helped us understand that God came into a hopeless world and hopeless circumstances and brought hope when we need it most. And now we, as people who have received hope, are carriers of that hope. And today, we now are talking about the Bethlehem candle or otherwise known as the faith candle. Which, by the way, at any point in time, I might swing too far and catch on fire. Please let me know. David told me that they have a fire extinguisher. They will douse me, all right? So that might happen. Might, might be cool. We'll keep going. But just so you know, I've never preached with fire on stage. So it's kind of intimidating. Pyrotechnics. So we're doing the faith candle today out of Luke 2, 1 through 7, all right? We're going to be looking at the journey of Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem and the birth of of Jesus, trying to figure out what can we learn about faith from this? What does faith say to a weary world? So turn there, if you would, Luke 2, 1 through 7. I forgot to do this in the first service. If you don't have your Bibles or you don't have the inserts, we'll have all the scriptures on the screen. If you have the app, you can follow along and take notes that way. I remember how this all works. Come on now. It's not been too long. So with that being said, we're going to jump in. Luke 2, 1 through 7. Let's read it. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while we're going to call this guy Governor Q, because I can't pronounce his name, was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So here's what I'm going to do today, real simple. Um, I want to look at this passage, and I'm going to give you three realities of faith. All right, in light of the Bethlehem candle and this passage, what are three things that we can learn about faith? And here's the first one. Faith is rooted in the past. Faith is rooted in the past. Now, before we dive into this point, let's review real quick how Mary and Joseph began this journey. We see that in Luke 1 and Matthew 1. Luke 1, we see Mary's side of the story. Um, she's just a young gal, betrothed to be married, minor business. All of a sudden, the angel Gabriel appears to her and surprises her with this great and glorious call to telling her, you're pregnant, right? Everyone wants to hear that on any given day. And so shows up, hey, you've been blessed, highly favored, morning sickness. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, what? what is this? I'm, I, I, don't, I don't have a baby. And so then he explains it to her, tells her what's going to happen. She's going to give birth to the Savior. He's going to rule and reign for all, all eternity. It's going to be great and glorious. Mary's like, all right, I'm in. You've talked me into it. Let's do it. Fast forward then, not fast forward, but then jump to Matthew 1. Happens after that instance, we get Joseph's perspective, poor old Joseph. And Joseph waiting to marry this woman. He's doing it all right by the book. And all of a sudden, he comes to find out his wife or soon-to-be wife is pregnant. Now, that's unfortunate for him. And he's like, that's not how you start a marriage. So being a just man, he's like, I'm going to quietly divorce her, go about my way. I don't know how many people back in the day tried to pull, like, the God card. Like, he did it. But, like, I'm sure it followed flat a lot. And so he's probably thinking, it's not my baby. I'm out of this thing. Like, again, hey, you do it, right? Like, you would be that guy. So... They're figuring that out. But then an angel comes to Joseph and says, look, man, I know it sounds crazy. It's all real. It's all true. Go take Mary as your wife. You're going to give birth to the Savior. He's going to save his people from his, their sins. It's going to be amazing. Joseph wakes up. He's like, all right, I'm going to do this. Takes Mary, and they're on this journey now of faith to do, do this great and glorious task. task. Now, what I want to take a moment to say, this isn't important in the sermon, but I just think it's, it's important to note, um, as we look at how this began for them, what we can learn from Mary and Joseph is that neither one of them were looking 
to be chosen for this opportunity or this, or this act. Like none of them were like hoping, I hope I'm that guy that gets to be married to the woman that gets the baby, the savior of the world. Like none of them chose that path for themselves. It just happened to them. And I think for us, the lesson that we can learn there is that you and I are not going to get to choose what God calls us to do. We don't dictate that. Right? In the Bible, what happens is God comes to usually the least of these, like the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. He chooses people you would not choose normally and calls them to great and glorious tasks so he can do that through them and get the glory. Okay? And so I, I just think it's, it's applicable for me. I don't know how often I should say this, but like I didn't want, still don't want to plant a church necessarily. I don't know if, like, I was never th- thinking I was that guy to do that. I thought, man, if I could choose my path, I'm doing something easier, more comfortable. People who plant churches are crazy. No offense. But, like, that's what I wanted. All right, I don't want to sign up for this. And instead, God has called us to this now, and we're walking in obedience to it because we believe it's what he wants us to do. Didn't sign up for it. Wouldn't have chosen myself for it. Here we are. And that might be the same for you. You do not get a choice in what God calls you to do. Your decision is, are you going to walk in it or not? Mary and Joseph had this dropped on them. Probably not something they were looking for, anticipating. But they said yes. And they're walking in it. And what is helpful is understanding that their faith was rooted in the past and what they knew God had told them. I want to put up some key words and phrases here from Luke 1 or Luke 2, 1 through 7. We have some phrases here that are pointing to to some greater realities. Mary expecting a child, Bethlehem, line of David. You all see that in this passage. And why that's important, what Luke is doing as he's writing this gospel is he's trying to show us using key words specifically that God is doing what God said he would do. Right, so on here we see that the Mary expecting a child, she was a virgin. In Isaiah 7.14, it was told that a virgin would give birth to the Savior. It also said in Micah 5.2, it would come from Bethlehem. And then the line of David. We've known throughout all scripture, not only in Jeremiah 23, 5-6, but a major theme is that from the throne and line of David would come the king who would save the world. Who was going to be the ruler and reign, reign of all of God's people. And so you see that in scripture, all of it from beginning from his rule and reign all the way through the Old Testament and the Psalms. They're not actually waiting for David to be resurrected, but they understand it's through David that the Savior would come, and we know that now that to be Jesus. So Luke is trying to show us, specifically as he's writing these things, you can miss it if you're not careful, but he's trying to show us that what God promised years ago, he's now bringing to pass. And here's a point about faith that we can learn from this. Faith is not based on wishful thinking, but on the promises of God found in Scripture. Okay? Not based on wishful thinking, not thoughts, feelings, circumstances, weird dreams after a meal, the stars aligning rightly. No, no, no. Our faith is based on Scripture and the promises of God. And the reason why that's so important, like the application point, if I could have one, would be exactly what the angel says to Mary in Luke one thirty-seven. He says it this way, for no word from God will ever fail. Not one word from God is going to come, is going to fall flat, is not going to come true. God's plans are going to happen. If anything is sure in this world, it's what he's written to us. Jesus said that heaven and earth can pass away, but not a single dot of scripture will. It's going to stand the test of time. God's going to do it. If he said it, he's going to do it. There's nothing better to put your faith in than those things. And we look back understanding that faith is rooted in the past. And our only response when that is the case is to be again like Mary. Her response to that verse in Luke 1, 38 says this, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary heard these things. 
understood these things, angel said, I want you to know, not one word is going to fail. And she said, I'm in. Without question, not going to argue, not going to push back, not going to complain, I'm in. That's our response today. Understanding that our faith is rooted in the past, that is according to what God has spoken to us, our only next step is to walk in that. And I think what's helpful is our second point, understanding how this connects. Faith is rooted in the past, but secondly, faith is needed in the present. Faith is rooted in the past, but it's needed in the present. Now, before we get to Luke 2 and unpack this a little bit, I want to do some groundwork with this concept of faith. I think if you were wanting to pick, like, what's the most popular verse or phrase in the Bible regarding faith, you would probably land on 2 Corinthians 5, 7, which says this, we walk by or live by faith, not by sight, right? We love that verse. It's tweetable. It's nice, succinct. It's also true. It's a very true verse. But I just have a feeling that if we're not careful, if we don't actually know what faith is, what does this verse even mean to us, right? Like, if you don't know what the word faith is, you can't really apply that. And I think if we took a survey of the room and we asked you, like, hey, what's faith? What's faith? What's faith? We get a whole lot of various incorrect answers. Like, I think we do the thing where you use the term to define the term. Like, what's faith? And you'd be like, it's walking by faith. And you'd be like, that's helpful. What, what does that even mean? What's well, walking by faith? Taking a step of faith. Taking a leap of faith. Like, we would know what we're talking about, but also we wouldn't know what we're talking about. So... Is there any other way for us to understand or learn more about this word? Maybe a definition. And fortunately for us, God knew we'd need this. He gave us one. In the book of Hebrews, in the 11th chapter, it's called the Hall of Faith. It's a fantastic chapter. In the first service, we agreed in 2024, PC's going to preach a series in this. Right? Maybe. Like, you should. It's a great chapter. Um, you should read it if you never have. It's a fantastic part of Scripture, just inspiring, encouraging, challenging. And the very first verse in this chapter gives us a definition of faith. It says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence and assurance. That's how the Bible defines faith, which means that faith is not us just checking our brains at the door and living on a whim. It's not just ignoring everything that we see around us and then throwing everything out the window and saying, I'm just living by faith. Like, I'm just going to be based off of what I think and feel, wishful thinking, what I hope. I'm just going to go about my business, ignore everyone's voices. Like, no, I'm on a faith journey. That's not living by faith. It's interesting that a lot of people actually will use that terminology to sidestep Scripture. What God has clearly called us to, to live by and walk out, oftentimes people have been like, well, I have to know this. I'm the exception. Hi. And I get to walk by faith, not necessarily do that. That is not walking by faith. That's foolishness. Because here's the point about faith. Though faith may be blind, it is not uninformed. It is blind. We can't see everything. We don't have all the information. But it doesn't mean that you just throw your brain out the window and do whatever you want. You have to know the book. If you're going to walk by faith, it means walking out what God has told you, despite what you're living through or seeing. It's absolutely necessary that we have an understanding of the Bible, God's written word to us, to understand how we can walk step by step in faith with him. And in America, man, I just hate to say this, but we're spoiled brats. All right, back in the day, people in the first century had to depend on other people to give them readings of Scripture, hear that taught, go to the temple. We today in America have Bibles for like babies, Kids, teenagers, men, women, dogs, I don't know. Like we have, if you need a Bible for something, you would find it. Several English translations when there's people groups that don't have a single one. And I hate to say it, I'm not saying you in this room, but a majority of Christians in America are Bible illiterate. 
and we have it at the, our fingertips. So thankful for this church, by the way. In this last year, doing a whole reading through the Bible plan, like not many people would ask their church to do that. But shout out to your pastor being that guy. He was like, we're going to do that. And they're like, we're going to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's never going to have me come back after this. <laughs> you understand the point, though? Like, we can't walk by faith if we don't know what he said. And luckily, we have a book, a deposit of revelation to know him and walk with him. So we've got to know the book. Now, let's get a little practical here. Because I think, I want to be fair, walking by faith is hard. And there's a tension here with faith. And as I was thinking about these things, I, I thought a way to kind of show this, of the dynamic of what it looks like to walk by faith and the tensions that we feel. So on the screen here, I'm going to have two statements that I think make up this tension of faith. The first one, A, I know what God said he would do. Those are promises, right? That's if you read the Bible, we can know that. That's not hard for us. You know, we may not do it, but we can find out. But B, that's why it's point B, but I don't see how God will do it. Blindness. Right? doesn't say walk by faith, not by sight. There is a blindness aspect here. If we knew everything, we would not need faith. That's not for right now. That's for in the future and eternity. One day we will not have faith. Faith will be outdated, as will hope and all those things. We'll, we'll be there in the presence of the Lord. But right now we have to walk by faith, which means there's some things, there's a gap in what we see and understand and know. Now here's the trick. You and I, on a daily basis, live in light of one of these statements. Think about it, okay? This is, what, this is how this works, okay? We either live in light of statement A or we live in light of statement B. I know what he told me. I know what he has said. So despite what I see, I'm going to let that determine my course of action and the way of life over anything else. That's what it looks like to live in light of statement A. Statement B is, I know what God said. I know what the Bible says. But... In my current situation and circumstance, what I can see, taste, touch, hear, what I feel is a little bit more urgent. So I can't really live in light of that. I'm going to live in light of this. I'm get my hands dirty and get involved a little bit. We may not say it that way, but that's the reality of how we live our life. We either live in light of his promises or we live in light of what we see. And we got to let A inform how we live in light of our situation and circumstances, not the other way around. Now, we don't just follow the Bible when it's, you know, necessarily convenient. We'll get to that in a second. We got to let it drive every moment of our life. So how does that look like? It could look like this. I know God's going to provide, but I feel like I just need to, I need to take this other step over here. I need to get a little bit more busy here. You know, it could be like this. I know God's called me generous. I know I'm supposed to give to my church, to the kingdom of God. I know that he even says he's going to give me those opportunities, help me abound in every good work as I do that. But man, I just, I could use a little extra cash over here. I know God's given me gifts and talents I'm supposed to use in my church and my community. I know it's a, there's a small time commitment, but man, I just, I got some hobbies I want to invest in. I know I should be in a spiritual community, but I'm a little bit of an introvert. I don't like people. I know it's good for my spiritual growth, but uh, I just don't want to do that. Or I know I'm supposed to read my Bible and pray, but getting up in the early morning, morning is just hard and it makes me groggy. I'm not a good person when I'm around people and I do that. God doesn't want me to do that, right? So you see how that dynamic plays out? Here's, what, here's another area I see it. A little bit more explicitly. As I was writing this sermon, it just came to me just really specifically as like, oh, I get, okay, let's talk about that. So in my experience as a young pastor, I've walked with a lot of young people who want to step into full-time ministry. Always difficult when you deal with those people who don't have um, believing parents. You know, when the kid says, hey, I want to work in a church my whole life and I want that to be my career. Like for someone who's not in church, who's not a Christian, that's like, 
what? Like, can you do that? Do they do that? Do they pay you people? Like, they kind of do? Like, you know, it's like, how do you do that? That's always one thing. It's like, all right, let's walk through that. We've had to do that. But then there is always the heartbreaking and way more painful situation that when you have parents who claim to be followers of Jesus, and they are the single most difficult hurdle to get over for those kids that follow the call of God in their life. I've, I've seen pastors do this. God bless, not these pastors here. These pastors, amazing MVPs, pastors. I love these pastors here. But I've known pastors that they counsel people in line of A all the time. You know, they'll tell them, oh, you believe God's called you? Man, that's amazing. Step out in faith. Believe him in that. But then they get to their kids, and all of a sudden they live in counsel in line of statement B. No, you need to get a real job. No, you got to get a real degree. Yeah, I know. That's cool, but, like, come on. Be reasonable here. They cancel other people in statement A, but their kids statement B. And I just want to be sympathetic. I understand. It's one thing to trust God with our lives. It's a whole other thing to trust God with our kids' lives. That's just really tough. I understand. But one of the things that I have to understand, what you need to know specifically is a part of this church. I think God has his hand on this church specifically with the next generation. Such a passion they have to raise them up. Every year at student camp, they not only give them an opportunity to connect with God, but also respond to a call of full-time ministry and pathways to equip them and prepare them to do that. And if the parents are not on board, if we don't get on that bus, we're going to hinder the kingdom of God. We got to get on the same page with that. It's hard. It's scary. But we got to live in light of A with ourselves and even our kids. And not just passively. There's some situations parents are like, fine, you do whatever you want, but I'm not helping you. What does that do? How is that even helpful? Like, hey, sure, go ahead, do whatever you want, but I'm out. Don't call me when things go south. What if we did it differently than that? What if instead we're like, hey, you know what? I understand. I hear you. A lot of unknown answers there. A lot of questions. Let's figure this out together. We're in this together. Let's pursue God together. We're with a good church going to help us. We'll take one step at a time. Wouldn't that be better? And I believe the future of the church depends on parents understanding that. Stepping in faith with their kids in that direction. And we're at the right church, a good church to do that, okay? So that's, that's a little bit of the, the, the dynamic of faith that we live in. And I think what's helpful now is maybe some principles that we can draw from Luke 2 that will help us manage that tension, all right? So I, I, I see three principles in this passage that we can directly apply to our walk of faith today. Here's the first one. Walking by faith means trusting God is always working. I love you, Keith. You're amazing. Always aiming me right there. Never move, never leave, never change. I need you. <laughs> Walking by faith means trusting God is always working. Look at the first three verses again. Those days, Caesar Augustus issues a decree. Got to take a census, right? The entire known Roman world. And so everyone goes to their own town to register. You could read that like I did many times in my life and just think that's just information. And you completely miss an insane few verses. Because consider this. God used a census. Put it in the heart of Augustus to have a census take place. About 60, 80 million people estimated in the known Roman Empire in the first century. And he had a census taken, shuffling the whole deck, making people go different places, frustrating plans left and right. All so that he can move two insignificant people to an insignificant town to bring forth the most important person in human history. That's what we just read. And no one at that time, other than God himself, had any idea that was happening. How much more today are we so ignorant of what God is currently doing in the midst of our world? We're thinking it's all out of control. It is. But also, God is still in control. He is still the one that is the author of human history. And everything is working according to his plans. 
I love Corey Ten Boom was a great hero in the World War II era, helped a lot of Jews escape the Holocaust, went, ended up going to a concentration camp her own self, survived, wrote many works, proclaimed the gospel in that, uh, in that area. If you haven't read about her, go look it up. But she has a great quote that I saw a few weeks ago that I was like, this is so fitting for this. She says this, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. And from her perspective, like she's a person that's got like faith, faith. You know what I mean? Like faith, you know. And she's sitting here thinking, I want everyone to understand, there's no panic in heaven. God's got no problems, only plans. He's never one time uttered, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. It's never happened. Never will happen. He's never looked at, oh, man, didn't account for that person over there or that people group. No, nothing in heaven right now has anyone panicked. He's sitting there thinking it's all going according to plan. Which means you and I can trust him with the big details and the small details. Like, that's faith fortifying in my mind. Understanding that even when I have no idea, God is working salvation in the midst of the earth, as Psalms say. This is just a small snapshot of him doing that. Walking by faith means trusting God is always working. Secondly, walking by faith is often inconvenient and unexpected. This one isn't as fun as the first point, all right? Neither is the one after that. So I'm sorry, but the the warm feelings are over. Now we're going to talk about the real stuff. Unconvenient, unexpected. Okay, so look at these verses. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, Bethlehem to town of David, because he belonged to the house line of David. He went there to register with Mary. Mary's with him, supposed to be married, expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. All right, so let's think about this. Unexpected, the sense of faith may lead you to unexpected places. No one in their right mind had Bethlehem on, like, their vacation card schedule. Not a place. Like, no one cares about Bethlehem. No one, it's Bethlehem. Like, you don't go to Bethlehem for anything. You leave Bethlehem, okay? And instead, God had them have to go back to this place to fulfill his prophecies and promises to them. And so in the same way, we got to be willing as we walk by faith to go places we didn't expect to go or even want to go. Like, I think when you talk about Bethlehem, you get the same response I did when I talked about planting a church in Vegas. When I tell people that, we started to have those conversations. It was always very encouraging because everyone always say, Vegas? I was like, yeah. They're like, Vegas? And I was like, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> okay. You know. But, like, no one was excited about it. You know, it's like, that's, that's now, it's a, that's a known city. Imagine now the opposite of an unknown city. People are like, Bethlehem? Like, they would get that response. But that's what faith does. You just never know what God's going to do, and he could do anything anywhere. But it's also inconvenient. Let's imagine the timing here. Katie, it's great to see you. Katie Burns is sitting up here, seven months pregnant. Seven months pregnant, looking incredible. Let's get up for Katie Burns. Now let's just put ourselves in Katie's shoes. Seven months pregnant. This is telling us that Mary is very close to giving birth to Jesus, which means she's roughly in the nine-month range. If you ever had a child, you know where it's going. Katie, I want you to imagine you're two months further along pregnant. Alex, you're doing a great job. Alex being Joseph had to go to Mary at this time and be like, babe, you're looking great, glowing. Can't wait to have this baby with you. Um, I checked the mail today and got something from the government. Uh, we got to go to Bethlehem and we got to leave right now, 90 miles south, three day journey. You ready to go? And can you imagine Mary, nine months pregnant? She's like, You want me to what? And so, you know, throw her on a donkey. And I'm sure Joseph heard it every, all the way. Just, just everything, right? Inconvenient. Like, that's not good timing, right? Like, who in their right minds, like, there's God sitting up there is like, oh, she's feeling contractions? Make him go. Now. It's like, it's next now. But that's the timing. And it was the perfect timing. But that was in their faith journey. Man, they get to dictate that. They didn't get to determine that. They didn't have, they had to go when it was time to go. 
And they end up landing there, giving birth to Jesus. Walking by faith looks like that. And in America, we have to be willing to inconvenience ourselves because we are in a land of convenience. Like we do not like being inconvenienced any way, shape, or form. But to walk by faith in America today, we got to take the lesser known road often. Just what it looks like. Just like Mary and Joseph. They had no choice in the matter. They just followed the Lord in that. Thirdly, walking by faith will require sacrifice in your comfort, preferences, and desires. It says in verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So again, you're about to probably start having these conversations. You know, when you have a, a first child, you learn a lot of weird, interesting things about birth, the due date, and like things you got to do. I love being me, a husband and father, because we're just clueless. And so... And everyone reminds you of that every single step of the way. But you get in this mode, and when you have found out that culture, what we like to do is we like to put together a game plan for the day when the baby comes. That it's like if any, everything goes wrong, don't talk to my husband, don't talk to the father, just follow this document. This is exactly what I want for the baby, medications, I want this birthing tub, whatever it is. Like they got a birthing plan for every one of their situations. And when they have a baby, they are trying to dictate and determine, here's how I want this whole moment to go. And I'm just thinking of Mary here. Mary is down in Bethlehem, can't find a room. She's in open air, sitting on some hay probably, giving birth to Jesus. And then doesn't have a little bed to put him in, but a feeding trough. And it's just, Mary had to throw her birthing plan out the window. I'm sure she probably imagined having a baby in a totally different way than how she had Jesus. Totally different circumstances, hopes, preferences, dreams of that moment, a precious moment. She didn't get that. And for us today, I think a crucial step in walking by faith is understanding we're not following Jesus to follow our dreams. We're following Jesus and dying to our dreams. To say we're choosing your will over our will. What we wanted for our life, we want your life. And even though that's hard, like on this side of obedience, that's difficult. I'm telling you, on the other side of obedience, it's pure joy and no regret. You will never regret following and walking in obedience with the Lord. But on the front end, it often looks like you got to give some things up. you got to die to some things. you got to surrender those things. And that's painful. That's hard. You mourn that. But the promise is on the other side. It's worth it. Which leads us to our third point about faith. Faith is rooted in the past. It's needed in the present. But thirdly, faith is seen in the future. What's so interesting about this passage and these things that we read about Mary and Joseph how they started this whole journey, the promises given to them. They saw a lot of it. They saw the birth of Jesus. Mary saw most of Jesus' life, his, his death and resurrection. But currently, still today, in some sense, you could say Mary and Joseph are still waiting to see the promises fully realized for their baby boy. To sit on the throne and rule and reign in perfect peace and serenity, his people. That has not yet been seen. And Hebrews 11 would again say about all the people in the Bible that though they walk by faith, they lean on the promises of God, none of them actually received what was promised. But it says that they saw it from afar. They greeted it from afar, looking ahead to a better country. Hebrews 11.6 speaks to this. It's interesting. I've always found this passage so fascinating about faith. It says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what's this verse saying? Some of it's like really easy to understand. You can't please God without faith. Why? Well, you got to believe. Faith is belief. You got to believe he exists. You can't see God, invisible, without sight. You got to believe him. Okay. 
But then the second component of that, it says that you also have to believe that he rewards you in the pursuit and the following of him. So not only is faith believing what we can't see, but it's believing that there's something for us. On the other end of this, there's a reward that we're actually pursuing. I think I'm going to start campaigning against a popular phrase that is a good phrase, but I just think it's not fully a great phrase. And it's the phrase that Jesus is enough. It's awesome to say, sounds good, tweet it, put on a sticker. In hard times, I think it feels right to say that. But I just think that we're kind of, we're missing out on what's there for us. And here's why I think that. I just think that when we're in heaven one day, we're standing next to Jesus. I have a really hard time believing that you and I will sit there and we would say this. This is enough. This is good. I'm satisfied. My expectations have been met. We're good. I just don't think that's going to be what is reality in heaven. What the Bible tells us is that nothing, we could never imagine or even think about what God has prepared for us on the other side. That is beyond comparison what glory has for us. So I don't think we're going to be standing there next to Jesus saying, this is good, I'm satisfied, you're enough. I think we're going to be sitting there saying, you are better than what was promised. All this was worth it. This is why we did how we lived our lives and pursued you. This is what we live for. Not just enough, but that Jesus is better. That's the better statement for us to say today. To understand what faith and we're seeing in the future, we're not just hoping that we're satisfied, taken care of. We're looking for this fulfillment, overflow of joy in the presence of our King. So I think Jesus better is the better statement. I think it's how we should live our lives as we go forward. I think it's how Moses lived his life. Moses is a, a man in the Bible who had a massive hand in leading the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. He was born a Hebrew in Egypt in a time where the Hebrew boys, the young children were being killed. And so he's put in a basket, put up a river. He landed at the house of Pharaoh, raised in that house. And look what Hebrews 11 says about Moses and his example of faith to us. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Chose to be mistreated, it said. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses chose over a lot of good things that he could have had, a lot of comfort and pleasures, and he chose over them to suffer, to be disgraced, the lower road, because he was looking ahead to a better reward. That's what it means that faith is seen in the future. If you're reading the devotional that we have right now from Paul David Tripp, Come, let us adore him. Today's devotional, I thought, had such a great quote to close out this sermon. He says this, but here's what you need to understand today. The surety of these past prophecies and the specificity of how Jesus fulfilled them is also your guaranteed future hope. The story that the prophets of old pointed to has not yet come to its final conclusion. This means that today, in your life and mine, God is still working his unstoppable plot. And he will not relent or rest until all that the prophets predicted is fully realized in the lives of every one of his children. And that's you and me. We're waiting for that. So what does faith say to a weary world? Faith tells a weary world that better is yet to come. Despite what we see, what we're living through, 
despite what we want to escape from, what we can know, what we can be confident in, have assurance of, is that there's better to come. And that one day what we have firmly believed by faith will be sight. And so we look back to the past, see our faith rooted there, needed in the present as we walk out in it towards the future, seeing that one day it will be worth it. And we will say that Jesus is and was better. We're going to transition to a time now of reflection. We're going to have a few questions on the screen for you just to sit there each moment to pray and have a conversation with God to really process what you've heard today. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll be done today. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the faith that you've given us. God, that we can lean on you, depend on you. Thank you for the promises you've given us to cling to in this time so we can walk in faith today and have a hope for the future. God, I pray you speak now in this time. Show us what you want us to do, where you want us to go. We love you. Praise in Jesus' name.